On the eve of the 1980 presidential election, many of the country's political and opinion leaders viewed Republican candidate Ronald Reagan as a threat to American security and welfare. He was, the thinking went, an unserious ideologue with rigid and simple-minded views and little appreciation for the complexities of global affairs. And yet Reagan, in part by exploiting the grievances of white voters in middle America, won a resounding victory, defeating Jimmy Carter in his bid for re-election. In a new book, Reaganland, America's Right Turn, historian Rick Perlstein examines the roots of Reaganism and finds a straight line to Donald Trump. We'll talk to Perlstein and explore the similarities and the differences between the rise of Reagan and the rise of Trump on this episode of Skullduggery's Buried Treasure. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostage. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydeman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. You know, I well remember the sort of disdain that um, the elites and the think tanks and the columnists had for Reagan at the time of his election and even through a good chunk of his presidency. Um, he was viewed as uh, a not terribly subtle thinker, a guy who said a lot of things that weren't true, who sort of um, invented myths that sounded good to voters but uh, didn't actually fact check although we didn't have fact checkers back in those days. And yet, you know, he turned out uh, to a lot of people to be a successful president. I mean, the uh, collapse of the Soviet Union, which took place right after his presidency, is uh, widely attributed to him. And, you know, he is revered by conservatives and many Republicans and many others today, including a lot of Republicans and conservatives who are not fans of Donald Trump. So it is interesting. Interesting to look at the parallels between Reagan and Trump and also note the differences. Yeah, well, we just had John Bolton on our podcast, uh, who is uh, a proud uh, Reaganite uh, yeah. and a, now a never Trumper. And who's he writing in in this election? He told us he's writing in Ronald Reagan. You know, it's an interesting thought exercise to compare uh, these two uh, presidents. They are different in so many ways, temperamentally, in terms of their, you know, their political styles. There are some interesting parallels. It is interesting to note that they both use the slogan, Make America Great Again. Yeah, that, um, that, I, is, know, a, um, that uh, is a nugget uh, that Pearlstein has in the book. Yeah, uh, you know, and, and Trump uh, just referred to himself in the context of uh, why he was downplaying the coronavirus to Woodward, that he's a, he's a cheerleader for America. But, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I think in some ways the fact that that Donald Trump has espoused uh, many of the, the policies and the kind of like the worldview of a, of a Ronald Reagan just makes the point of Pearlstein's book, which is that we 
are still living to uh, to a great extent in Reagan land. Reagan, you know, they called it the Reagan Revolution. You know, when he was elected in 1980, that was a political paradigm shift. You know, all of these issues that were viewed as radical and on the margins of American political life, Reagan managed over a long period of time to bring into the mainstream. Everything from smaller government to lower taxes to um, his views on abortion and, of course, putting um, conservative judges on the bench. These are all things that I think Donald Trump I don't think he cares about any of those things personally. Remember, Reagan was a conviction candidate. Trump is a transactional uh, politician. But I think he he did understand that uh, that those issues still had huge resonance within the Republican Party and he needed to do those things to get elected. But he's not going to be remembered as, you know, anything close to the Gipper, you know. Right. And let's, uh, you know, and let's take note of one big difference, which is that, you know, Reagan did surround himself with some pretty serious players like uh, uh, James Baker and uh, Donald Reagan and um, a, a lot of others who, by and large, would speak respectfully of him and, uh, in some cases, uh, you know, had great reverence and affection for him. You look at the people who Donald Trump surrounded himself with, uh, whether it's Michael Cohen or John Bolton or James Mattis or Rex Tillerson, you know, everybody who was close in his orbit, it seems at this point, uh, other than his direct family members who came away with nothing but disdain and uh, even contempt for Donald Trump. So there is a big difference there. So, look, um, nobody has uh, studied this more closely than our guest, Rick Perlstein, who's written this mammoth book, uh, Reagan Land. It's a successor to uh, his book, Nixon Land. Uh, An earlier uh, tome he did on Barry Goldwater in the 1964 election. It is a good read. It's a fun read, and uh, it's pretty sweeping. Yeah, he's uh, one of the things about uh, Perlstein that is um, so compelling is his ability to intertwine what's going on in the culture with what's going on in, in our politics. And so I'll be interested in talking to him about that. And and I am going to want to ask him uh, about whether there is anything on the horizon, on the political horizon, that you know can be equated to what Ronald Reagan did when he swept into power in 1980. The Democratic Party has sh- shifted pretty far to the left in some ways. On the other hand, Joe Biden, a centrist, um, is the nominee and is uh, right now looking like he has a pretty good chance of getting elected. And um, and Joe Biden is no Ronald Reagan. <laughs> right. And, and hey, one other uh, big difference, uh, uh, I suspect, and we'll we'll know this for sure very shortly, is Ronald, Ronald Reagan won re-election in a landslide. What did he carry? Like 49 states against uh, Walter Mondale. Uh, and I think it's safe to say we don't know who's going to win between Trump and Biden. Biden right now, but there's no way it's going to be a landslide yeah, for Donald Trump sure. if he that's for sure. uh, if he does squeak through. Um, so anyway, let's get right to it. Rick Perlstein. Mm-hmm. 
And we now welcome back for a return appearance on Skullduggery, Rick Perlstein, out with his new opus, Reaganland, America's Right Turn. Rick, welcome back to Skullduggery. Hi, Mike. Hi, Dan. Great to be back. I can't wait to hear what you thought of the book. Uh, well, it is quite the read. Like all your books, one can easily breeze through, and there's so much to talk about. But I guess I just want to start out by saying, you know, the subtitle is America's Right Turn. And right. this is uh, essentially 1976 to 1980. It's the Carter presidency, but it, but it is your thesis, that this is when America turns right. Is it a right turn that we are still living through today? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, if you look at the Republican Party, certainly it's, you know, rocketed further and further right decade by decade. I think the elements were all there, you know, in the 70s. Uh, That's what I try and establish in the book. You know, I think the, the Democrats have probably moved further back to the left, you know, than they were, say, a decade decade ago. But one of the things I also established in the book is that, you know, when America was facing this ordeal of inflation, you know, Carter's interpretation of that and how he tried to solve it was a right-wing solution. He said we needed to close budget deficits, which turned out to be a pretty tragic decision considering we have enormous deficits now and no inflation. But, of course, you know, Carter also backed, you know, the Equal Rights Amendment and rejiggered America's foreign policy around human rights and, until the Afghanistan invasion. Went, and went, then he promised to increase the um, defense budget for, by uh, 20 percent if he was reelected. Uh, but I think the general direction of the country since the 80s has has been right, especially since it was pretty much the consensus in 1977, you remember that part, all the thumb-sucking articles in the summer of 1977, that the Republican Party was uh, possibly going the way of the Whigs unless they purged conservatives. Yeah, I want to just kind of flesh out that point a little bit, Rick, because I, I think I'm right that uh, the Republicans, you know, they've lost the popular vote five out of the si- uh, last six right. elections. And, you know, there were two-term Democratic presidents in Bill Clinton and Barack Obama, but I think your thesis is that, you know, in, in all of this time, the Democrats, even, you know, while they have done well politically and outmaneuvered their uh, Republican opponents, they have been kind of governing on, in some ways, on terms set by the conservative movement. So that, that in effect, we are still living in Reagan land. I think so. I mean, I think the important question is kind of politics beyond politics, right? It's who sets the agenda and whose playing field the terms are being, uh, you know, the, the order of battle is being set. And I think that's, you know, shifted a little bit in the last few years. But I mean, don't forget, you know, the next president, the next Democratic nominee after Carter, you know, promised to raise taxes. You know, Dukakis said this election is about a competence on ideology. You know, Clinton says the era of big government is over, even though Carter had already said that in 1978, I guess the message didn't take. You know, and Joe Biden, of course, being a pretty much a finger in the wind kind of politician, is saying a lot of things to align him with the left wing of his party. But at the same time, you know, this is a guy, as I document in 1978, who ran for election boasting that he was the stingiest senator that he was the senator who fought the hardest against, you know, busing to achieve school integration. 
you know, he was the guy who invented federal mandatory sentences for judges, right? So people wouldn't have guessed this. You know, it's certainly in 1964, uh, not in, you know, 1975 when I, you know, depict Senator Edmund Muskie telling the car companies that the car, you know, he, he was proposing what we have now, you know, fuel efficiency standards, cafe standards for uh, auto fleets. And when the car companies went to him and said, we don't have the technology to do that, he literally, you know, looked them in the eye and said, you know, we don't care. Get them. You know, if you want the right, you know, to produce cars for America's roads, you're going to have to make cars that emit less less pollution. I mean, can you imagine a Democratic senator saying that to the head of Amazon or the head of Facebook today? You know, if you if you don't if you can't control your platform, we're going to close down your platform. So I think that this is certainly much further right than the pundits of the past could have ever imagined taking place, especially since after 1976, they were saying that uh, Ronald Reagan had just about as much chance as becoming president of the United States as Richard Nixon. So, Rick, you wrote that terrific book many years ago before the storm about the Barry Goldwater campaign, which is one that, you know, does have a lot of analogies, or at least Goldwater does, to Trump, some, which we could discuss. But, of course, Goldwater lost an historic landslide. He was trounced. He was viewed as far too extreme for the American political system. And yet, here we are, you, you chronicle in 1980, what is that, 16 years later, Ronald Reagan, who was perhaps one of Barry Goldwater's most articulate supporters. Better um, than a, winning, more articulate than Barry Goldwater. Yeah, more articulate than Barry Goldwater, and winning a, uh, a nearly comparable landslide. That's right. Uh, uh, over Jimmy Carter. So I guess the question is, what happened? How did we go from a trouncing of the pure conservative Goldwater in 1964 to the landslide election of the pure conservative Ronald Reagan in 1964? Right. You know, I was very intrigued by something Francis Ford Coppola said. You guys can take this on board and say, think, think about what you, what you think of it when you, you know, write your next book, that a really good story can be summarized in one word. He said the godfather the, for the godfather of the word is succession. And I kind of thought to myself, what would be the one word that summarizes each of these books I wrote? And how does it contribute to the confluence that I basically, it all ends up with Reagan, right? And I think for Before the Storm, the first book in the, in the series, which starts when, you know, conservatives are completely in the wilderness, the word is organization. Conservatives start getting organized, right? They, they pull together all these institutions. The next book is Nixon Land. And, of course, Richard Nixon, you know, eight years, uh, I'm sorry, yeah, eight years after Barry Goldwater's trouncing, you know, wins 49 states for the Republicans. And the one word that I think summarizes that book is resentment. So what Richard Nixon kind of brings to the table to help, you know, kind of wrench this change that I'm narrating is speaking to the resentments of the white middle class, you know, vis-a-vis -vis the social changes of the 1960s, vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, the idea that Democrats all are a bunch of egghead bureaucratic snobs like, like uh, Adlai Stevenson, who, as George Wallace memorably put it, can't even park their bicycles straight, right? So the next book goes from 1973 to 1976 and, you know, covers the end of the Vietnam War and... Watergate, 
And uh, I think that the word for that one is denial. And the reason I say denial is that what Ronald Reagan brings to the table is after this you know, great national reckoning, you know, what has happened to America, we're no longer on the top of the heap, Ronald Reagan comes along and runs for president in 1976 and says, we're never not going to be on the top of the heap, right? We're the city on the hill. We're God's chosen nation. And if America has gone astray, it's only because it has become less America, right? These kind of forces from without have, have kind of come in. And I think that what happens in Reagan land is all these elements, all these tributaries feed into the Reagan movement. And what happened basically, more specifically during the period of 1976 to 1977, was a sense of further decline in the American prospect. And so you have you know, Nixon's rage, his ability to sh channel the white middle class's rage at all the social changes and uh, all their kind of sense of their own way of life and dignity and honor being traduced by liberalism. You have all these organizational uh, things happening, the new right that came out of the Goldwater campaign. You have the Reaganite message that, you know, we are the city on the hill. And you kind of mix those all together, and then you kind of stir in uh, the exhaustion, what appears to be the exhaustion of the New Deal model of politics, and a lot of other fun stuff, too. We got 900 pages to go and you end up with that landslide. But it's important to remember that even though I do think American politics and culture you know, has shifted to the right during this period, and I, you know, one of the metaphors for that is you know, um, the, the movies that everyone talks about are no longer you know, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest or Taxi Driver, you know, these kind of anti-institutional, kind of morally ambiguous, dark adult movies, they're Star Wars, they're Superman, right? So even though that, that shift is happening, you gotta remember that over 80% of people who voted for Reagan told the exit pollsters that they were doing it not for any ideological reason, but just that they wanted, quote unquote, a change. Rick, um, I, I know that when you wrote this book, you were in no way setting out to compare uh, Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. That would have been something. Oh, well, well, I mean, if I, would have, if I had done that in 1997, but yes. Yeah. But you can't read the book without hearing echoes, right. seeing parallels and, and contrasts. And, uh, you know, you mentioned the famous John Winthrop phrase that Reagan borrowed, uh, the shining city upon a hill. Right. You know, you think about that and you think about, you know, all those years later in Trump's first inaugural uh, address talking about not a shining city on a hill, but American carnage. American carnage, right. That's an obvious contrast. And yet they both also use the slogan, make America great again. So, Talk for a little bit about the parallels and the contrast between these two right. figures. Well, we had a pretty interesting parallel this week, right? So we had this blockbuster revelation from Bob Woodward that, you know, when did he know and what, what did he know and when did he knew it? Donald Trump knew it all from the beginning and hid, you know, the deadliness of the, the coronavirus. Not only the deadliness, but the fact that it's, you know, transmitted by air, all the facts that all the things that he denied were the case weeks later. Well, what was his response to that? What was, what was, what was his, his Reaganite response to that? I'm a cheerleader for America, right? I got to keep America optimistic, right? It's kind of dumb Reagan, right? It's, 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 it's kind of like tragedy, first time as tragedy, kind of second time as farce. So that kind of Reaganite entailment, it's very much a part of how the Republicans do business, but it's also become 
hegemonic even among how the Democrats do business. In, in Invisible Bridge, in the preface, I talk about how Samantha Power had written an article in the New Republic saying America, you know, needs to like reckon with the crimes in its past. And in her in, in her Senate hearings to be confirmed as United Nations ambassador for for Obama, Barack Obama, to Mark, Marco Rubio asked her about that, and she said she 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 literally apologized. She said. You know, America's always been the greatest nation in the world and, you know, has no crimes in its past, right? So that's that's the Reaganite entailment, too, that kind of willful blindness towards reckoning with the—or, you know, you could even look at Donald Trump saying, no, I'm going to um, I'm gonna ban talking about racism and, you know, training programs that are funded by the American government. That's very Reaganite, right? Very Reaganite. America's not a racist country, right? We've gotten over that, you know? Uh, I was part of the, I was one of the radio broadcasters, Reagan said, that had, you know, integrated baseball, you know, even though, you know, he had been a ra radio broadcaster 10 years before baseball was integrated, right? But yes, a very profound difference is, you know, Reagan's presentation was, to put it in a word, you know, optimistic, right? He, he always had a smile on his face. Even when he said very cruel and cutting things, you know, he said it with such a kind of a glow of confidence that often people didn't even recognize the cruelty underneath what he was saying, right? The biggest difference, though, is that after the Goldwater defeat, after that debacle, the whole, the main current in Republican rhetoric, in Republicans' presentation of themselves to the public was kind of a backstage discourse and a front stage discourse, right? So in the case of Richard Nixon, you know, if you look at something I point to all the time, if you look at his 1973 budget that he proposed to Congress, it was a Reaganite budget, right? He wanted to roll back the New Deal, roll back the Great Society. If you look at the coverage in Newsweek at the time, they say it's the most important political document since the New Deal. So you, you realize that this whole time, he's president for four years, and he's holding what he wants to do back, waiting for the political mandate to be able to do it. Right. Ronald Reagan, you know, his entire career is dominated by a retinue of advisors around him who are very good at covering up his extremism. Right. The terror that if they let out the kind of goal, inner goal water in Ronald Reagan, that his political career is over. And I had an article in The New Republic you might have seen in which I talk about the letters that his staff wrote for him to sign. And they're all, you know, kind of presenting himself as a mainstream intellectual in the broad center of American opinion. And I compared it to the letters he dictated in which he sounded like a member of the John Birch Society. Right. So what Donald Trump does, and this is the big difference, I'll finish up, Mike, uh, is he erases that kind of membrane between front stage and backstage. This is the quiet saying the quiet part loud. And the fact that the Republican Party has flocked to him, you know, even though he's, you know, no longer dog whistling the racism, but train whistling the racism, you know, says something very profound about the shift in the Republican Party. Now, it's a Trumpite Trump Reagan Republican Party, a Reaganite Nixon Republican Party might have had some of the same aims, but its presentation to the public is radically different. Yeah, I was going to say, but look, Reagan had been governor of California for two terms. Um, he was skilled in the art of political compromise. He knew how to navigate the political system and, and, and get things done, something Donald Trump 
you know, never did uh, right. in the political world. So I think that is a, a significant um, difference. But that said, I uh, was fascinated by some of the bit characters who you talk about who, you know, like Donald Trump. Back many years. Well, Donald <laughs> Trump, yes, is one. Let's get to him. But, you know, Roger Stone was oh, Reagan's Northeast coordinator. Paul Manafort ran the South for right. the, uh, and, and Ronald Reagan was not going around saying, "Look at my awesome, look at my awesome Donald, you know, look, look at this awesome guy I have, Roger Stone, who's running yeah. around with briefcases full of a hundred thousand dollars, you know, to buy off the New York Liberal, Liberal Party for the nomination." You know, Donald Trump is not ashamed of the fact that he's buddies with Roger Stone until he was. Until he wasn't, he was not afraid of the fa- ashamed of the fact that he was friends with Paul Manafort. All these guys come out of the cutthroat world of young Republican politics in the 1970s. Uh, Roger Stone uh, had been a Nixon dirty trickster, right? He wrote a check to Edmund Muskie, the, the Democratic presidential frontrunner from the Young Socialist Alliance, and then sent the canceled check to a newspaper. You know, it was a dirty trick. As a, it starts with the R, rat fucking. He was a professional rat fucker, right? And when he ran for a young Republican president, which was a pretty important job in the Republican Party back then in 1977, with Paul Manafort as his campaign manager, uh, Evans and Novak, who were kind of like the Michael Isakoff and Daniel Clademan of the, the 1970s, <laughs> had a column in which they're like, what the hell is going on with the Republican Party? These front men for this new right, you know, these new right crazies are trying to take over the party, this Nixon dirty trickster. And where the hell is Paul Manafort getting all this money? They're spending like 10 times more money, you know, than any young Republican candidate has ever spent. You know, he had opposition research on, on the opponents. He was cutting deals, you know, dirty deals, get winning votes by promising people jobs. And he would kind of, you know, uh, he would he would backtrack on that. He won. He became the young Republican head. His wife was Richard Vigory's political director. You know, the guy who was sending out these crazy direct mail letters saying that, you know, if uh, Democrats are elected, your children are going to be taught by homosexuals. And so this is part of the Reagan coalition. But again, it's backstage. These are the backstage guys. You know, Paul Manafort runs the South. Roger Stone runs the Northeast. Lee Atwater runs the North Carolina campaign and does some epic dirty tricks to beat John Connolly. Uh, Starts a rumor that John Connolly is passing around $100 bills to black voters. So this, you know, you can't really divorce Reagan from this stuff, but Reagan is the kind of guy who can kind of float above it all, smile. Well, let me, yeah, let me ask you, let me pick up on that, um, because I think before when you were describing Nixon land was the one word, was it resentment? Resentment. Resentment. Um, but, you know, Reagan, sort of below that sunny surface, wasn't he was also tapping into grievances and the sense of people feeling left behind, whether, you know, liberal elite thinking about feminism and gay rights and affirmative action and sort of of wooing voters through those Mm -hmm. kinds of of appeals. The Reagan Democrats. Yes. Well, uh, there were plenty of resentments to be had, right? So a really, you know, excellent example was, uh, you know, when he, you know, went to Neshoba County to the, to the county fair, right, right, famously, down the street from where where uh, Goodman, Cheney, and Schwerner had been lynched and, you know, said he supports, you know, state rights, states' rights. Or when he, you know, went uh, before uh, basically a rally of moral majority preachers on August 22nd, 1980, 
and said, you know, I know you can't endorse me, but I endorse you. And then just basically gave a speech in which he, he, you know, kind of name checked like all the um, conspiracy theories and panics that conservative Christians uh, were organizing themselves around in those years. And by the way, speaking of the front stage backstage thing, you know, I produce a memo in which the guy who wrote that speech says, well, this is full of code phrases that only evangelicals will get. But believe me, they'll, they'll, they'll hoot and holler when they hear these things, right? Another character who fascinates me from your book and fascinates me also because I've been watching this um, uh, terrific TV series, Mrs. America. Ah, I don't yes. Know if Good you'd old Phyllis, it, my homegirl. Uh, yes, Phyllis Schlafly, because I think in a lot of ways she— um, She's the original uh, right-wing uh, troll. Right. And exemplifies that cultural shift. Yes. Um, So explain her role from this sort of hard right, gold water right Right. girl in 1964. That's right. Essentially engineers this social revolution um, that stops the Equal Rights Amendment. Yeah. And it's it's so fascinating when it comes to resentment, because. There's still kind of some kind of head scratching among conservatives why this woman whose, you know, biggest biggest issue is defense policy. You know, when Reagan becomes president in, uh, in the Hulu series Mrs. America, you know, she basically wants to become, you know, secretary of defense. Why in 1972 does she suddenly emerge, you know, loaded for bear against the Equal Rights Amendment, <laughs> right, of all things? And... I think the the best explanation for this is that the the kind of Republican women who supported the Equal Rights Amendment, like uh, in in the movie, who's the um, Ruckel's House, right? Jill Ruckel's Jill House. Jill House, right, right, right? Were the women Republican convention? She was she was in line to be possibly be vice president. In fact, she'd been told she right. was going to be Ford's vice presidential pick. Right. right. So this is this liberal liberal feminism that existed within the Republican Party that had robbed Phyllis Schlafly of the presidency of the uh, the coalition of Republican women in 1967, and she just kind of turned that resentment into this rage at those women. And the thing that was so fascinating about writing about this stuff was the Equal Rights Amendment passed the Senate in 1972 and immediately got like, you know, 30 states, I think, you know, within like, you know, months for the 38 states uh, that it needed to be part of the Constitution. And in 1976, you know, Time Magazine, you know, had its man of the year. And then this is when they started the trend of not having actual person, but kind of a category of people. Actually, that happened. They named men, uh, young men and women under 30 in 1965. That was you, Mike. You were man of the year. <laughs> what, what? I think, yes, right? Yes, I was under 30 in 1965. Uh, so um, in 1976, they named a dozen pioneering, quote unquote, women of the year. And so this is 1976, early 1976, when they're naming, you know, they had this big issue. And they they said, quote, the women's drive penetrated every layer of society, matured beyond ideology to a new status of general and sometimes unconscious acceptance. So the idea that this was inevitable, that this was universal, that you were just as unlikely to not support the goals of the women's movement as someone would be now to not support African-Americans voting, just that this has been this has been accomplished, was the conventional wisdom of the entire punditocracy. And I point out that while this was happening, while Time magazine was saying this, 
these popular therapeutic books were being bought by Christian women, literally in the millions. I mean, there were b books that sold like, you know, five, six million copies that were um, saying that the, the, the only path to true happiness and satisfaction is for women to submit themselves to their husbands like one submits themselves to the Lord. And these are books where, you know, women are advised if you're driving with your husband and your husband is speeding, you shouldn't tell him to slow down. You should pray for a policeman, right? The idea that you know, men are such snowflakes that you have to constantly be propping up their masculine egos. Can I get that for my wife, please? I'd like to find that. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, the other advice that um, this was actually um, Ruth Carter Stapleton wrote one of these books. And her advice to women was to practice pretending that when your husband walked through the door, he was actually Jesus Christ. <laughs> so you could, you know, greet him with the proper level of enthusiasm. But the, the political point, obviously, is that underneath the surface, there's, there's this enormous anti-feminist energy going on. And uh, this is all about resentment. The resentment that somehow feminists are going to throw you, you know, kind of naked and broke on the job market. Right. And you're going to have to give up the protection of the patriarchal family and your husband if you have one. And it was such an effective argument. And it was uh, Phyllis Schlafly was such a brilliant organizer that this movement of, of, of women really working at their kitchen tables stopped in its tracks in 1977, the progress of the Equal Rights Amendment. And not only stopped in their tracks, the progress of the Equal Rights Amendment added an entire new organ to the body of the Republican coalition. One of the fascinating statistics I came across was that one half of the women who were active in the anti-ERA movement in North Carolina had never been involved in politics before in their lives. I mean, can you imagine if you know, somehow Joe Biden could get you know, millions of people who had never been involved in politics for their lives to start becoming political activists with a passion as if their lives and their life beyond and the great hereafter depended on it. This was a huge deal. And this is, you know, really what made it possible for Ronald Reagan to push past all these less conservative contenders in the primary fight in 1980. So, Rick, one of the things you're known for and that your books do so well is that mingling of political and cultural history. You mentioned before two of the big movies that came out during the Reagan era, Star Wars and Superman. Um, so talk about, you know, what's going on in the culture that's reflected in the politics and and in politics that's, you know, reflected in the culture. Right. So the, the, the great... Uh... The great political theorist um, Stephen Bannon, <laughs> you know, said, uh, you know, culture, politics is downstream of culture, right? So in the way I've been putting it is that people were willing to vote for Reaganite movies in the box office before they were willing to vote for Reagan at the ballot box. And Star Wars is a perfect example. I was seven years old, right, when Star Wars came out, and it was the biggest thing going in my, you know, second grade class, you know. Uh, we were all trading Star Wars cards. And that's, you know, pretty significant because the movies that everyone was talking about and that were the blockbuster movies before that, like think about The Last Tango in Paris, 1972, with Marlon Brando. It was literally a, a movie about a random sexual encounter 
that involved all kinds of kinky sex and ends with a rape and a murder. And it was on the cover of Time and Newsweek, and it made hundreds of millions of dollars. <laughs> yeah, by the way, I was seven when The Last, last Tango in Paris came out, and that was a big movie among my uh, second-grade so friends. It's, but it's kind of like, you know, I could tell a whole story about this. There was, uh, in my last book, I write about um, uh, a, a book that a married couple wrote under a pseudonym about basically how to have, like, a hot, open sex life with your husband, and they wrote it under pseudonyms to protect their children. But then, like their children found out anyway, way, and all their friends found out. No one cared, right? So this is where this is where the you know Paul Weyrich said sex is the Achilles heel of the liberal Democrats. People who are terrified of this new openness towards sexuality were also a huge part of the Republican coalition. But the point is, Star Wars was you know the most talked about movie, and it was a children's movie. It was very explicitly a children's movie. George Lucas said, uh, "I discovered that making a positive film was exhilarating." He's talking about how um, he made um, American Graffiti, which was kind of this celebration of 1950s car culture after he had made this dystopian science fiction movie, TX-1138. You know? He said, I thought maybe I should make a film like this for even younger kids. Kids today don't have any fantasy life the way we had. They don't have westerns. They don't have pirate movies. Everyone's forgetting to tell the kids, hey, this is right, and hey, this is wrong. I mean, I don't know if uh, one could come up with a better, you know, uh, description of kind of the cultural and political vision of what Ronald Reagan was bringing to the nation than that. Did he explicitly, was he explicitly alluding to Star Wars when he referred yes, to yeah, Russia was. as the evil empire, Soviet Union as the evil oh, empire? That's an interesting kind of exegetical uh, commentary because to my mind, the fact that you have this kind of scrappy band of guerrillas, you know, kind of organizing underground against, you know, this kind of Death Star. I mean, to me, those, you know, Luke Skywalker and Han Solo and Princess Leia, I mean, that's the Viet Cong, right? And the evil empire, we're the evil empire, right? So one of the things, one of the Reaganite things is it reverses the moral valence of the Vietnam War. You know, Vietnam War, Ronald Reagan in 1980 got in a lot of trouble for going before the VFW and saying that Vietnam was a noble cause. And the pundits were like, what is he doing? You know, obviously everyone in America hates the Vietnam War, thinks it was a terrible thing. What they didn't grasp was people were longing for that sort of absolution, right? They loved the movie in which the good guys were you and you were the rebels against, you know, the evil empire, even though we were the evil empire in real life. Let me pick up on that because I totally get the cultural point and the cultural shift, but there was something else that took place in 1979 that you write about in really gripping fashion, and that is the Iranian Revolution. Yeah, why don't um, people talk? And, people and, people and have been hostage. asking me about that. Everyone forgets well, about yeah, that. I, I mean, I thought that was some of the most fascinating parts of the book because I had, you know, the detail you go into about uh, the, the taking of the hostages and the origins of Khomeini. But look, it was a reminder to a lot of people that, uh, you know, America does have enemies in the world, that there are dangers out there. And, uh, you know, Carter's response was perceived as weak and feckless. You know, there was the rescue attempt that, you know, ended up in the, the planes. Mike, uh, I, I got to wonder if you read one. the whole book. Yeah, I well, I I mean, I thought the Iranian stuff was just you know. Did really you read the the part in the ripping. about the, uh, the the exit polls on election day in 1980? Uh, I I don't know that I made it that far. Okay, <laughs> it is being 900 mean. pages. I'm Give me a mean. break. <laughs> I buried the lead in this book, and yeah. I think you're going to have to completely reverse your conception of what the what what the political effects of the Iran hostage crisis was about, 
NBC and New York okay. Times did a massive electri- uh, exit poll all over the country, 13,000 interviews. The people who gave the Iran hostage crisis as their number one issue voted for Carter by a margin of two to one. Hmm. Well, that is that is surprising, but it was part of the backdrop. It of was part of the backdrop. What was going on at the time, and, and the people who um, thought American was in decline as their most important issue did right. favor Reagan. Right, and look, it, it is important because we're still living with it today. <laughs> I mean, the heirs of the Iranian Revolution are still in power in Tehran. Uh, they are still an adversary, you know, one of the foremost adversaries of the United States. So, you know. I'll take you at your word about those exit polls, but it fed into perception that America was losing strength, was losing credibility around the world. You also had, you know, the the uh, what was it called? The Committee on uh, um, on the the, Present uh, Danger. Committee on the Present Danger at the same time, calling attention to the Soviet buildup. But Talk about what what impact you think the uh, Iranian Revolution had on America uh, on American politics at the right. time. Right. Well, what was really fascinating was you know after the loss in Vietnam, after the humiliation of seeing our you know embassy fall to the rebels in 1975, and Americans having to be you know airlifted by helicopter off the roof, the response. You know, it was things like, you know, the War Powers Resolution, you know, uh, giving presidents less power to act unilaterally, you know, to enter future wars. You know, it was a real kind of, you know, reckoning with, you know, what is it that American policy, in American policy, that, you know, kind of led to these reverses? And there was a widespread sense, you know, that the idea that America has to be the policeman of the world is something we have to jettison in order for, you know, America to regain its moral standing in the world, right? That was, you know, something like, you know, Jimmy Carter uh, negotiating to, you know, give the Panama Canal Zone, which was this basically high colonial entailment from the early 20th century, you know, back back to Panama. You know, that was Jimmy Carter saying, you know, we have to reorient our foreign policy around human rights and not just, you know, support any dictator who happens to support our interests. Now, that let was just interject, to Vietnam. Let me just interject on one point, Rick. Also, I should also mention the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. Right. Which, you know, fed into the same line of thinking. Right. So, right. so this, both the Viet, taking of the Vietnam hostages and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan which was, you know, widely perceived as Soviet expansionism, when, as I reveal, it really was this kind of comedy of errors in which they thought we were invading and they thought we were invading and they invaded first. And, you know, suddenly Jimmy Carter completely reverses his foreign policy and says he's going to, you know, increase the defense budget by 22 percent. The response to Vietnam was a reckoning with uh, whether America had a flawed foreign policy. The response to the taking of the hostages was a complete national repression of the reason the hostages were taken and why there was so much resentment towards America, which was, you know, the CIA overthrow of their government after, in 1956, after Mossadegh... 1953. 53, right, after Mossadegh decided that the oil that was beneath Iran's soil should actually belong to Iranians and, and help, Iran, help Iranians with their prosperity. That resentment directly led to the Iranian Revolution, the fact that, you know, we supported this guy to the hilt, the Shah, who was, 
you know, torturing people and even infiltrating American universities to spy on Iranians, right? All this awful stuff was happening. And instead of a reckoning with that, like we had after Vietnam, the response was, wow, our hockey team beat the Soviet Union, let's wave a flag, right? And there was, you know, no sort of sense that, you know, maybe we should be thinking a little bit more humbly about America's role in the world. The response was first an embrace among the Republican elites and the media elites of John Connolly, you know, who basically said, you know, we should we should turn Iran into glass. And then Ronald Reagan, you know, who who, you know, led, you know, chants for of, of USA, USA. But at first, it was also a rally around the flag for Jimmy Carter, right? His poll numbers never went below where they had been when the hostages were taken. And Jimmy Carter, you know, quite brilliantly, you know, used the hostage issue and used, you know, kind of this outpouring of patriotism and, and vigilante rage against Iranians, by the way, too. He did a Trump thing. He said all Iranian students in the United States have to report to the INS. It had never been done before, right? So he kind of like vilifies and otherizes the Iranians in America. And, you know, we still have this geostrategic issue, this kind of geostrategic dilemma where, you know, basically we only see Iran as an adversary and don't acknowledge why, you know, Iranians are so pissed off at the United States of America. So that's a Reaganite thing. That's very, very different than what happened in the 1970s. That's a really good indication of how you guys started the conversation of how American political culture has shifted to the right. So I, I want to actually look at uh, this story that you tell and, and look through that lens to sort of look at what may happen in the future. By the way, there's another one more point, Dan, I yeah, want yeah, to make. Yeah, yeah. One of the things I recover from the historical record that I think a lot of Americans who are trying to figure out why there's so much, you know, anti-immigrant rage in America and why Donald Trump could win, you know, Iranian Americans were being beaten up in the streets, right? I mean, they were being clocked over the head while police watched, you know, in, in a place like Beverly Hills, California. So, you know, this, this kind of feral ugliness was part of Reagan's America as much as it was part of Trump's America. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that you um, argue uh, and make the case for so brilliantly in, in this book is, you know, Reagan developed a coherent governing philosophy and, and ideology, you know, paradigm shifting, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, supply side economics, deregulation, building up the military, uh, you know, the judicial revolution, all of those things. So I guess looking forward, the question is, do you see the Democratic Party or progressives being able to do the same kind of thing? I mean, do you see the kind of, um, you know, the sort of uh, AOC, whether it's the Green New Deal or, you know, attacking systemic racism and defunding the police, any kind of movement on the left that could do the equivalent of what Reagan did in his march to power and then during those eight years that he was in office? You know, I uh, have compared AOC to Ronald Reagan, believe it or not. Uh, I did an interview with Isaac Chotner of The New Yorker, two interviews, actually, uh, because I think he couldn't believe me the first time. <laughs> he just kept on asking me the same <laughs> questions. But, you know, if you look at how um, someone like AOC talks about how her father, her immigrant father, took her to Washington, D.C., and she kind of developed this reverence for these, you know, kind of monuments of, you know, the people's the people's city and the people's government and how, you know, her organizing among, you know, her community in the Bronx, you know, was informed by that kind of 
patriotic idealism you know, that she picked up from her father on that trip to Washington, D.C., or her ability to kind of create this kind of epigrammatic, you know, sentence-long, punchy explanations about why America has to transform. I think that she has skills that very closely uh, resemble Ronald Reagan in her ability to take ideas that had previously been considered radical and outside the American mainstream, which is certainly what Ronald Reagan did, and speak them in a demotic language of American patriotism. And in both cases, with both Ronald Reagan and AOC, they were uh, roundly uh, derided and minimized and, um, what's the word, marginalized by the party's elites. Right. They were insurgents in the party. Right. And then ended up transforming the party. So I don't know if Ronald, if, if, if AOC is, you know, we're going to be talking about the age of AOC, like we talked about the age of Reagan, you know, politics is full of contingencies. But her ability to kind of um, articulate, you know, a complete holistic program that solves, you know, America's, you know, two biggest problems at once, which is the collapse of the middle class. And the fact that we all might, you know, be plunging into the sea from global warming, you know, with one coherent storyline, you know, and I emphasize the word storyline. If you look at the video that was made of her animated video of her describing the young, the, 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 the Green New Deal and telling it from the perspective of a little girl, you know, 20 years from now. I mean, I think there's something there. Yeah, I, I, I don't um, know if Musikoff agrees with me on this, but. Uh, yeah, it's just baby boomer stuff. <laughs> yeah. But of all of the guests that we've had uh, elected, you know, office holders that we've had on this podcast, I thought. AOC was but one of the most impressive. And what impressed me about her was to take ideas that a lot of people from our generation might consider radical and communicate them right. uh, it, it, you know, in ways that seemed reasonable and palatable. So in Isakoff is the guy who, he's like the guy in 1977. David, no, you know, the Boston Post who said that, that, that the Ronald Reagan has, a, has much chance of being a presidential contender as Richard Nixon. So Isakov is that guy? All right. Well, um, I'm He's changing uh, the subject. I'm, uh, I'm no, I was going to say uh, we're going to have to get AOC back on Skullduggery to Why don't get you bring her us reaction back together? I'd love to, to being compared to uh, Ronald Reagan by Rick Perlstein. All right. Right. Yes, we've got we've got an angle. We've been looking for a reason to get her back. All right, Rick, um, I guess my final question for you is, I mean, you've done Goldwater, uh, you've done Nixon, you've done Carter, you've done Reagan. What's next? Well, I, I want to do a short book. <laughs> One that's only going to take uh, a year instead of six years. Are you capable of doing a short book? <laughs> that would be 500 pages. Yeah, no, Can you uh, control 150 pages. It's going to be called The Republican Playbook, and it's going to be, you know, what I've learned, you know, these last 23 years working on this stuff, just kind of concanting, you know, how, how they did it, and it'll be kind of a guidebook for progressives. But after that, I want to I have another big project uh, I have in mind, which is tackling another huge issue in human history, which is uh, the rise of industrialism. So I want to write a book that's kind of like a, a guns, germs, and steel, but about the rise of industrialism. We're getting pretty grand there, Pearlstein. <laughs> From know. the Trail of Tears to the Chartist yeah. movement in England, uh, okay. to the Mormons, uh, to the rise of the mill girls and, and, and all that rest, all that stuff. Last question for me, what's on your reading list right now? What are you reading? Uh, what is exciting you? 
What is this, the New York Times book review, a interview with the author? Like, what's on your reading table? Yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, I'm reading uh, Inside a Dog by um, Horowitz, the, uh, the animal behavior specialist that tells you why dogs lift their leg when they pee and how you can uh, know what your dog's thinking. Uh, Rick, thanks a lot for, and we will have you back on Skullduggery in another 10 years or so when you finish this industrialism uh, book, which will probably be, Power to the take people. us that long to read it. You may finish it before, but it'll take us that long to read it. Anyway, thanks so again. Fun. A good book. The book is Reaganland, America's Right Turn, 1976 to 1980 by Rick Perlstein.